Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, to the Gospel according to Mark. And we're turning this morning to Mark chapter 10. For those who are visiting with us, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark um, uh, recently, and uh, we have come to this 10th chapter. Mark chapter 10. You'll find this on page 846, and we're reading at verse 17. This is speaking about Jesus. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. During each uh, sitting of the House of Commons, each sitting day of the House of Commons, there is an opportunity uh, for members of Parliament uh, to ask questions of our government. It is an opportunity uh, to hold the government to account. And during that period of questions, uh, many questions will be raised over a variety of topics. But every now and again, there will be a question that is asked that if you were listening to it, you will say that is a question that needs to be answered. That question must be answered by this government. And in fact, the way that the government handles that question will shape and define this government going forward. 
Sometimes questions bring to the forefront, they zero in and focus on what needs to be answered, what needs to be clarified. And throughout Jesus's ministry, Jesus has asked different questions. But this morning, we are looking at one question that was asked of Jesus. And it's not just any question. It's the most important question that could be asked. It's a question about eternity. It's a question about eternal life. And as we look at this question, we want to look at how Jesus answers that question about how does one uh, obtain eternal life, and then how we are to live in light of that answer of Jesus. And so we want to think about uh, this well-known account of a man who comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? You might see in the heading, if your Bible has the headings there, that this is referred to as the rich young ruler which is really taking from the way the different gospel records describe this man. In Luke's, he's described as a ruler. In Matthew, or at the end of these accounts, we're told that he was a, a rich man. But we are just simply presented with this man who comes to Jesus and kneels before him asking this question. And so we want to think about uh, how is it that we can obtain eternal life this morning. It says that he was, on his, he was setting out on his journey, that Jesus was on his way. And as we look at this passage, it is important to look at it in light of the context of Mark's gospel, uh, that he was setting out on his, on his way. Mark has been stressing throughout this gospel that there's been a certain path laid out for Jesus. If you remember how the gospel of Mark begins, it tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophecy of Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord. That's how Mark begins his gospel, that we have to think about Jesus's life in terms of a certain journey that he is on, that there is a certain way that was prepared for him, and that he is, throughout his earthly ministry, fulfilling a certain course and so while there are many things that Jesus teaches throughout the Gospels, he's talking about the nature of the kingdom. He's talking about what it means to be a disciple. He counsels people about certain social matters. We can never lose sight of the fact that behind or above all of these things, there is a certain journey that Jesus is on. And here there is that reminder of that, even as it says, and he is setting out on his way, his way towards Jerusalem. And you remember that ever since Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? That it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And again, Jesus begins to unmask, he begins to unpack for them what that means. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? And he starts describing for them that his path is a path of suffering. That his path is one of rejection. His path is one that ultimately leads to death. And so here, as it is just hinting at the fact Jesus is carrying on on his travels, it's a reminder to us that his travels, his journey, is ultimately to go to Jerusalem. That his path is ultimately one that brings him to the cross. And that what Jesus is teaching has to be looked at in light of his own journey. And so he is setting out on his way. But as he's on his way, uh, we are, uh, met, he's met by this man. 
And so this morning we want to think about how eternal life is only possible with God, and that we cannot earn it ourselves, and therefore we must depend on God's work uh, of salvation. We want to think about these verses in just two basic thoughts. We want to think about the assumptions about eternal life. And then we want to think about Jesus's answer about eternal life or Jesus's assertion about eternal life. Well, first, there is the assumptions that come uh, to the forefront. This man comes up to Jesus uh, with this question about what he must do to obtain eternal life. And as he comes to Jesus, you notice that there's certain features that stand out prominently about him. Uh, he shows much promise because when he comes to Jesus, he doesn't simply come casually or by happenstance. Rather, when he comes to Jesus, he comes running. Uh, he comes and he kneels before Jesus, showing deference and respect. He's, he's urgent and earnest about what he's doing. He cares about this topic that he's going to talk to Jesus about. This isn't simply uh, a philosophical debate. This isn't just a conversation uh, that is being discussed. This is something that means something to him. So he's earnest when he comes to Jesus. But he's also very focused on this issue. When he comes to Jesus, he's not, he's not looking for his belly to be filled. He's not trying to trip Jesus up in his words, to try and find some way in which he can catch him in his words. But rather, he is zeroing in on this central question. How does a person secure a blessed state after this life? After I die, how do I know that it will be well with my soul? That's the question that he is contemplating. And this man has enjoyed life and the present, but he's not fixated on the here and the now. He's able to think forward, knowing that death is appointed for all of us, knowing that our earthly existence will come to an end. He is thinking ahead about the future. And so he comes to Jesus with this question. He's not simply content to enjoy the present, but he's also thinking about the future and the fact that he must give an account before he's gone. So what are his assumptions when he comes to Jesus? He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He believes in God. He's persuaded that there is a God that is the maker and the judge of the heavens and the earth. He's also persuaded that life does not cease when they die, that there is an afterlife. But one of his assumptions is, is that there must be something that is done by him in order to earn his state of blessedness. What must I do to obtain eternal life? This is, this is central uh, and an important factor uh, if we're to understand uh, the man's question. His focus is on what he must do. Unless we recognize this, we won't understand why Jesus responds the way that Jesus does. Because when you look at this conversation, you might think that Jesus is missing the forest for the tree, that Jesus is getting caught up in the way that he was addressed. Simply by being called good teacher, that seemed to uh, catch Jesus's attention more than this important question about 
how do I obtain eternal life? But what Jesus is doing is he is challenging the man's assumptions. His assumptions about goodness. His assumptions about God. His assumptions about himself. And ultimately his assumptions about eternal life. It's like peeling back the onion. What do you mean by good? Because your standard of goodness is going to shape the rest of this discussion. And so Jesus calls attention to that. You're using the language of good in a flippant way. In a subjective way. But do you know what good is? What is your basis for describing and talking about good versus evil? What is your basis for talking about the ideal? Where do you begin when you talk about these realities? Because scripture tells us, if we turn to, for instance, Psalm 119, it tells us that God is good and God does good. We read there when Moses said, show me your glory in Exodus. It tells us that God would cause all his goodness to pass before him. God's goodness is shorthand to talk about the perfections of God. It's summarizing his character. It's who God is. The source of goodness and the giver of all good is God himself. And so Jesus here is calling attention. Do you know what you mean when you say good teacher? Because only God is good. Not only is God the source of goodness, but when we stop and think about it, then when we think about ourselves, do we reflect God's character as we're called to as image bearers? We are created in the image of God. We are meant to give glory to God by the way we steward his creation, the way that we live under his authority. To be good then is to mirror the character of God. This man assumes that there must be some good that he does that would make it right for him to be blessed in the afterlife. And Jesus here is highlighting when you think about good, you don't understand yourself. You don't understand the standard of goodness apart from understanding that God himself is good. If this man is wanting to know what he must do, then the moral law will tell him. That's what Jesus is getting at. What do you need to do? The law was given to you a long time ago that told you that. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. It's the Ten Commandments. This is God's perfect will. This is how we reflect the goodness of our God. By living in conformity to his will. If you're wondering how we are to live, then you only have to look to the law. But the law does more than that. The law exposes the fact that we fall short in that. That we don't, we don't mirror God's will perfectly. That we fall short in our sins. We fall short of the standard of goodness set down in the law. And so again, God's word teaches us there is none who does good. Not even one. So this man comes to Jesus and he's saying, there's an eternal life. There must be life after death. There's a God who's created us. He's created eternity into our hearts. So how is it that I can know that it will be well after I die? What do I have to do? And Jesus is saying, 
your mindset, your frame of reference is all mixed up. The way you're thinking is actually opposed to the gospel because you're assuming there's something you can do to secure eternal life when the problem lies within you. So there's an assumption here that Jesus is pressing the man about. You have an assumption that you can do something to earn it. But eternal life is not something you earn. It is something that God gives. And so Jesus here goes on and says to him, you, uh, when he tells him, you know the law, uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. But then the man, after hearing this, he says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The man here assumes that he has been faithful. He assumes that actually there is no problem with sin. That there is no problem of guilt. And so he assumes a rosy estimation of himself that does not conform to reality. He's sincere in his assessment. But he's still sincerely wrong. Jesus doesn't call him a liar because he's putting on a face. The man, no doubt, was very moral. He was probably a decent neighbor. He was probably someone who helped people in the community. He probably did do many good things in the, in the society. He probably thought outwardly, I do conform in many ways to the law. And so Jesus looked at him, meaning he looked intently at him and loved him and told him, you lack one thing. Missing one thing doesn't sound bad if it's a spelling test. But when the one thing is the main thing, then to miss one thing is the only thing. If you are going to go on a trip and you are packing your bags, you're, you're packing your clothes, you're packing your toothbrush, you're packing your, your wallet, your, uh, your shampoo, you're packing all these things, but there's one thing that you haven't figured out yet. You haven't figured out how to get from plan or point A to point B. You haven't bought a ticket to go on a plane or you haven't got a car to go from PEI to Ontario. You haven't figured out the means to move from point A to point B. That's, that's only one thing that you have to work out. But it's also the main thing. And without that one thing, you're not going on that trip. Jesus here, when he says you lack one thing, is telling this man, in spite of all your efforts, you're still missing the main thing. And he says this to him with love. He tells him what he needs to hear, and he tells him, go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. Because Jesus here is uncovering for the man what he needs to come to grips with. What does he cherish most? What does he view in Christ? Is there something in Christ that would make him prioritize Jesus above all else? Or is he still clinging to his wealth? And it tells us the man went away sad. He went away disheartened. Because he had great possessions. 
He went away sad because he had hoped that Jesus would tell him, this is the thing you have to do. If you just do this, all will be well. You can save yourself. He went away sad because Jesus had exposed something about the man that he didn't see himself before. How much his money meant to him. And how little Christ did. He ran up to Jesus. He obviously respected him. He respected him as a teacher. But he wasn't at the point of devoting his life to him. And now he's torn because he's walking away from the one that he had such respect for. But it's uncovering some of the idols of his own heart. The man said, I had kept all these laws from the days of my youth. And Jesus is able to point out that he had failed at the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so this man's assumptions about eternal life are exposed. He came to Jesus assuming that there's something I have to do and then I earn it. Like saving for my retirement. I just have to put away enough. And if I put away enough, I can enjoy a comfortable retirement. The man had the assumption that there was really no problem of sin that had to be dealt with. That all was well because he was a good, decent person. And maybe you're sitting here this morning with that same mindset. Where you think to yourself, I'm not, I'm not a particularly religious person. But I am a good person. I've done a lot of good things in this world. And I'm sure that because I'm a good person, I'll be okay. But those are your assumptions. Those are your assumptions that you're good. That's your assumption that you can earn your way before a God. That's an assumption that you have no guilt that has to be atoned for. And Jesus here is answering those assumptions by exposing them as baseless. So there is the assumptions of the rich young man. He assumed he could do something to earn his eternal life. He assumed that there was no problem with sin. But as the man walked away disheartened, Jesus asserted uh, several things to his disciples about the nature of eternal life. It tells us in verse 23 that Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why were the disciples amazed by those words? They were amazed because in the Old Covenant, to be a recipient of prosperity was a sign of God's favor. That God was pleased to bless his people with prosperity. It was a sign of God's goodness being showered upon a person. But if even the wealthy will have difficulty entering the kingdom of God, what does that mean for everyone else? And so here when Jesus says how difficult it is, the disciples are flabbergasted. How can anyone be saved then? Jesus impresses that point by going on and saying, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You think of sewing. For some of us, just getting the thread through the eye of the needle is hard enough. But Jesus is saying, it's like taking 
a great animal, a camel, and trying to force it through the eye of the needle. That's how difficult it is for a person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is to secure eternal life. And the disciples get the message, and that's why they say, then who can be saved? And Jesus answers by asserting several things about eternal life. First, that it is impossible with man. It's impossible. Not just hard. Impossible. You can't save yourself. Why not? Because the problem lies within. Because you're a sinner. And you need to be saved by a savior. You can't save yourself because our natures are not neutral or innocent. Our natures are twisted. In fact, that's what scripture says. For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is by our fallen nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not just won't. Not just uninterested. But it cannot. There must be a change of heart. That causes a person uh, to be willing to submit to God. It is impossible for man to save himself because we stand in need of saving. So it's impossible uh, with man. But Jesus goes on to say it's not only impossible with man, but it is uh, possible with God. All things are possible with God. God will do what is impossible for us. God, who is good and the source of all goodness, will give eternal life by his power. Again, that's what the good news is. The good news of Christianity is what God has done. That God has done what we could not do ourselves. In Romans 8, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God, who is good and the source of all goodness, has sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you hear that? God has done what we couldn't do. We assume, I must do something. I must climb the ladder. The The good works that I do must outweigh the bad works. I must do these actions so that I can put my security in them. And yet the problem remains, you're a sinner. The problem remains that you're guilty before God. And if you're going to be made right with God, it must be only by what God himself has done. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save sinners. But God has provided a savior in Jesus. And that is the one that we are to trust in. When Peter hears all this, Peter's uh, still, uh, it seems, exasperated. And he says, see, we have left everything and have followed you. But notice again, Jesus qualifies Peter's actions. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels. Even religious actions can become things that people put their confidence in. I gave to the church. I attended faithfully 
for over 40 years. I, I was always helping and volunteering at the church. I was involved in the mercy ministry in our church. And Jesus here is saying, these actions don't save you. It's only Christ that saves you. Our actions flow out as thanksgiving to God when they're done for Jesus' sake. People can assume lots of things, but we must live by the light of God's word. Jesus asserts that it is impossible to earn our salvation, but God saves sinners. And he's done that by sending his son. The son of God assumed our humanity. He did all that was required to save. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should die so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. This is eternal life found in Jesus, to believe in him, to find life in his name. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So the man's question is a good one. We should want to know, how is it that I can have eternal life? How can I know if it's well with my soul? Well, we have to answer that ourselves. Do you have eternal life? And how do you go about answering that? Where do you put your confidence? You only really have two options, inward or upward. You either say, I have done, or Christ has done. You either look within and assume that's good enough, or you recognize that God is perfect and I am not. That before God, who is the source of all goodness, I have fallen short. And I stand in need of his righteousness if I'm to be accepted before him. But I also believe that God has given a gift in his goodness, in his son. And that by treasuring him, I belong to my God and Savior. Do you have eternal life? Are you living simply for the present? Or can you also think ahead to eternal matters? Some questions need to be answered. They shape us and define us. Do you have eternal life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us uh, to examine our own selves, to realize what our assumptions are, to live in light of what you have declared in your word and to find our hope and satisfaction in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, then, that we would uh, grow wise as we uh, learn from the experience of the rich young ruler, to be able not only to contemplate the serious questions of life, but to be shaped and directed by what Christ has said and done. Go before us in Jesus' name.